Hello, I'm Harriet Vickers and welcome to this month's JNMP podcast. It's long been known that multiple sclerosis prevalence increases the further you get from the equator, but not exactly why. This month's Patient's Choice paper examined vitamin D levels and a genetic factor, both hypothesised as being related to this. And lead author Roisin Lonergan tells me what they found. Also in this edition, Quinton Dealey tells me why hysteria and hypnosis might be more closely related than they appear. But first, Dr Roisin Lonergan from St Vincent's University Hospital on the relationship between genes, vitamin D and MS. So hello Roisin, thanks very much for, for coming on. Hello, thank you. Could you tell us when people first made this observation and, and why they think it might be? The, the observation that MS um, prevalence increases with um, increasing distance both north and south of the equator um, has been documented um, as far back as the 1960s and, and observed before then. There have been a number of theories, but the most um, accepted theory is that it may relate to ultraviolet B, which um, is part of sunlight, um, and lack of ultraviolet B um, with increasing distance from the equator. This UVB is required to activate inactive vitamin D to active vitamin D. Um, and it has been shown um, in numerous studies that vitamin D has an immunomodulatory effect or it has an effect on immune cells and that this may be relevant in autoimmune diseases such as MS. The theory really is lack of sunlight in places far from the equator. And, and you decided to, to look into this hypothesis in Ireland and you, so you chose three populations in, in Donegal in the north, um, Wexford in the south and then southeast Dublin in the middle. With these cohorts, did you again find this, this pattern of prevalence? The first finding was that we compared our, our, uh, the numbers with a, a study from 2004 and that looked at Donegal in the northwest and Wexford in the southeast also. So first of all our, our, our finding was that MS prevalence had increased in both of those areas compared with um, a few years ago and um, it was significantly higher in the northwest Donegal and higher but not significantly so in the southeast. So that was the first finding. And um, then within the three areas um, we found that the highest prevalence again was Donegal in the northwest. The lowest um, prevalence was actually on the southeast coast, which is Dublin, and then the, the uh, a lower prevalence than the northwest, but also lower than the the southeast coast was a little further south in Wexford, um, and that's uh, southeast. So overall, MS is increasing, and there is a latitudinal variation between northwest and the two southeasterly areas. And and when you you looked at, at factors that you thought would be associated to this. Um, you took the, the winter vitamin D levels and, and also a particular allele that has been implicated as a genetic factor. Um, what were your findings with these? And so first of all, looking at winter vitamin D levels, I should explain that in, our, in the laboratory, um, in winter, anything below 50 nanomoles per litre would be considered insufficient and anything below 25 nanomoles per litre would be considered defi- deficient. Um, so our findings were that in both people with MS and healthy controls, levels were, were in the insufficient range, so low overall. Um, and in fact, there was no significant difference between the patients and healthy controls. <clears throat> However, when we looked at the really low levels, the, the deficient levels, where there were less than 25 nanomoles per litre, there was significantly more people who had MS had deficient levels than those who were healthy controls. Um, and with regard to the three areas, 
the the area which had the lowest prevalence of MS, that was the urban southeast Dublin area on the east coast, um, it had um, significantly higher vitamin D levels, mean levels, than the other two areas. So overall very low and at the very low range, more people with MS had very low levels than controls. Um, and what about the, the genetic factor that you looked at? This was a, a particular allele, was that right? Uh, what, what, yes. Um, what patterns yep. did you find with that? Again, um, in, in keeping with the, the latitude of the, sort of the distribution of the MS, and this was described in, in that earlier paper by McGuigan in 04, um, this HLA, it's DRB1-1501, this, this particular allele has been associated with MS susceptibility for the past two decades, um, particularly in Europe and Ireland. Um, it was more prevalent in people in the Northwest, where MS is, is highest. And it was less frequent in both southeastern areas, particularly in Dublin, where MS prevalence is the lowest. So it's in keeping with the pattern of, of MS prevalence. And, and what happens when, when you take the two together, the, the genetic and, and the vitamin D levels? Uh, could you draw anything meaningful out of that? The, the design of the study doesn't allow us to, to pinpoint an actual uh, causal relationship um, but, and in keeping with previous studies, what it does suggest is that, first of all, vitamin D deficiency is common and widespread in Ireland, which is at 53 degrees north, so it's quite far from the equator. So, first of all, that's an important public health message, really. But then, more people with MS had very low levels. And that, in combination with the fact that um, the area with the highest MS prevalence had the highest amount of this high-risk allele, suggests that it's probably a combination of a genetic susceptibility um, in combination with low vitamin D levels, they may together increase risk of multiple sclerosis. Mm. Um, and that possibly this explains the latitudinal variation in Ireland. Um, and it suggests that MS risk in someone who's genetically susceptible to, to MS, it might be modified by um, optimizing vitamin D levels. Um, obviously further studies need to, to examine this but but our, our, our take-home message really would be that we cannot say that it was low vitamin D levels alone that explained the latitudinal variation but in combination with genetic risk and um, vitamin D levels may may modify risk. Great. Well, what are the, the further studies that you'd like to see done? The, the next step you know with, with large cohorts a lot of people would be looking at checking vitamin D levels from the, the perinatal or the, the, the time around birth because vitamin D levels have been shown to be genetically regulated themselves in some cases. So looking at whether early vitamin D levels are, are relevant in developing MS later on, but also um, it would be important to look at whether from a therapeutic perspective and people who already have developed multiple sclerosis, looking at whether um, high levels of vitamin D and, and optimizing the level in the, in, in the blood can modify disease um, or in people who have the, the, the risk allele by supplementing prior to diagnosis or prior to development, whether this will reduce risk of developing MS. Um, and very importantly, in people who present with maybe one episode suggestive of MS, but not enough to fulfill a diagnosis, known as, this is known as a clinically isolated syndrome or CIS, mm. looking at supplementing these people, patients with high dose vitamin D and examining whether or not this will reduce um, development of clinically definite MS is also a very important area and studies, I think, at, at, at present will be, will be looking at this and whether we can um, modify disease or prevent it by supplementing with vitamin D. Well, thanks very much for, for coming on and telling us about your work.
Thank you very much for, for asking. Um, and we would be very appreciative of all our of, all the people with MS and the controls who, who participated um, in our study. Um, and thank you very much for interviewing me. Great, thank you. Next, hysteria and hypnosis. How neuroscience suggests a common cause for both and the possibilities that exploring the relationship could provide. I'm sat in the studio at BMA House with Dr Quinton Dealey, who's from the Institute of Psychiatry at London's King's College. And he's coming to talk about his paper, which is this month's JNMP Editor's Choice. So, hello Quinton, thanks very much for coming in. Hello there. And you and your co-authors looked into similarities between hysteria and hypnosis. And you write that it was Jean-Martin Charcot who originally came up with the idea that you investigated. Could you just talk us through exactly what uh, Charcot proposed? Hmm. Well, Charcot had um, observed in the end of the 19th century at the Salpetria that the symptoms of patients with hysteria could be produced by suggestions under hypnosis. He also noticed that hysterical symptoms could be removed in hypnosis by the use of suggestions and in addition um, it also appeared to him to be the case that the patients who had hysterical symptoms were also highly suggestible. Um, another thing which uh, both uh, sets of phenomena seemed to share in common was, was an absence of any gross organic lesion that mm. could account for them. So I think it was on the basis of, of those kind of observations that led him to postulate a parsimonious explanation uh, for both sets of phenomena, a single type of cause or process that could account for both. Mm. And you're right that this idea is, has really been largely ignored since he proposed that in the 19th century. But you decided to pick it up and you looked at some neurological studies. You highlighted three. Could you just talk us through what those three findings were? And um, mm. Well, in the uh, review article, we reviewed relevant studies both of hysteria or dissociative conversion symptoms and also studies of hypnosis which had for example used hypnosis to to model these kind of symptoms and the main findings were that um, hypnotizability traits are associated with a tendency to develop dissociative symptoms we also found that dissociative symptoms can be modeled with suggestions in highly hypnotizable individuals. In other words, you can take a, a description of a hysterical or, or dissociative symptom and use that as a basis to design a suggestion which in a highly hypnotizable person can lead it to be reproduced. And when, with the introduction of uh, brain imaging techniques over the past uh, 10 to 15 years, a succession of studies have really shown there are striking similarities between the kind of changes that occur in brain activity in people with hysterical symptoms and in individuals in whom suggestions have been administered to mimic or replicate those hysterical symptoms. Did they pinpoint any particular part of the brain where this was happening? Well, as, as a, as a generalisation, one could say, certainly across most of the studies that were reviewed, is that with respect to a given hysterical symptom and its hypnotic analogue, there is typically a reduction in activity in a brain area which would ordinarily be active 
in the normal exercise of that function. So, for example, where there is paralysis, there's less primary motor cortex activation. Where there is a, a sensory loss, there's less sensory cortical activation. And where there is an amnesia, there is less activity of the medial temporal lobes. But that is typically coupled with an increase in prefrontal cortical activity in different regions, but broadly speaking, which are relevant to the idea that uh, higher-order executive processes are enlisted to inhibit or suppress the normal exercise of a primary cognitive or behavioural function, whether it be movement, sensation or memory. And this review is, um, in some ways, it's a, a call for arms. You highlight issues with the work that has been done so far and you also said that you want to, to provide an agenda for, for future work. I mean, what, what was the agenda that you came up with? What do you now want to see done and studied in the area? Well there are two ways of thinking about it. One is a, from a methodological point of view. Um, it's certainly important to design studies which attempt to fractionate or split um, experimental designs into steps whereby it becomes possible to identify the precise point at which a suggestion might alter cognitive or behavioural function and its underlying brain activity. So I think part of it is to learn from the innovations and also the limitations of existing studies going forward. And the other is to think about the ways in which the use of suggestions in high hypnotizables can be extended to improve understanding of a variety of different neuropsychiatric symptoms. Um, so, for example, the use of suggestions to model uh, passivity phenomena in schizophrenia, which are characterized by thought insertion or loss of control over actions or loss of control over emotions and uh, impulses. One of the other opportunities by, uh, afforded by the use of suggestions is, from a cultural neuroscience point of view, to model phenomena that are culturally widespread but are not typically interpreted as pathological within their respective cultural context. Uh, and so examples of this might be identity change uh, within the context of uh, possession trance. Uh, amnesia associated with possession trance is culturally a very widespread phenomenon. Uh, and also instances of uh, inspired or involuntary speech or writing. So, for example, the case of automatic writing, another revelatory mode of experience, mm. mediumship. So I think there is a uh, suggestions in, in hypnosis combined with uh, cognitive neuroscience methods provide new opportunities for understanding important basic categories of behaviour that uh, human beings have uh, exhibited in a wide variety of cultural settings throughout history. Mm. Do you, um, I know it's very early days, but do you have any glimpses of how this could be used practically for, for doctors and, and to, to help benefit patients? Well, I mean, uh, there are a couple of possibilities. I mean, one, I think we're still at the relatively early stage of developing uh, psychological interventions to treat dissociative symptoms such as paralysis or sensory losses. It's possible that within existing cognitive behavioural therapy approaches that uh, suggestions could be trialled to augment these particular interventions. Um, there are potentially other applications of brain imaging technology as well. We're in the relatively early stages of using what are called pattern classification algorithms which can be used for diagnostic purposes. 
and it is possible that with improved understanding of the neurobiology of dissociative uh, symptomatology that we may move into an era where, where our assessment of patients could be informed by diagnostic neuroimaging and that would help us potentially to distinguish between patients who are simulating disability and patients who are experiencing symptoms which they experience as involuntary in nature associated with distinctive neural underpinnings. Mm, that's really interesting. I hope other scientists pick it up and we'll, we'll see some papers on this in the future. Okay, thank you very much. Great, well thanks very much for coming in. Thank you. Both these papers, as the editors and patients' choice, are available for free. So if you'd like to read into these studies more, visit jnmp.bmj.com. That's all for this edition. Next month, I'll be looking into the knowledge of nouns in old age and deep brain stimulation for Parkinson's disease. Join me then. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.